0: Good morning, church. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to continue uh, this series, really try to wrap up this series this morning that we've been in, uh, the book of 1 Timothy, which has been personally extremely challenging for me. I hope for you as church family to walk through this great New Testament letter that we call 1 Timothy. So we're going to try to wrap this thing up today and uh, get through the end of chapter 6 together. 1 Timothy 6, 11. We're going to be right around in there in just a minute. Uh, let me uh, try to take this a second and set the context for what we're going to be reading here in just a few minutes. And I want to do it this way. Uh, some of you may know, I don't know that everyone knows, but uh, just a few days ago, my wife and I and uh, 20 others from our church family returned from 10 days in Israel. And an incredible opportunity that it is to spend that time in the land of the Bible, if you will. And uh, just an incredible, incredible few days. If you, if you have, oh, I don't know, five, six hours to kill, ask somebody that went on the trip, what was the trip like? And they will share a whole lot with you of what it's like to walk there and see kind of the Bible come to life, so to speak. And I'll just say this, it's something we hope to do every two years as a church is to uh, take a group from our church and travel through the land of the Bible. ton I could share with you about that. I'm not going to show you my slides or anything like that. And some of you are like, what in the world's a slide? But anyway, uh, one of the observations, <laughs> one of the observations uh, was just the nation of Israel itself today. Uh, something that becomes very apparent when you're there is that the people of Israel today... Um, particularly the military and the citizens of that country, are at any given moment, they are in a state of readiness for a fight or for war. Now, not that the people of Israel are trying to pick a fight, that's not the idea, but as a very small nation, if you will, surrounded by other nations, some of them that are not too keen on Israel and would really like to see Israel banished from the earth, they have to be ready at any moment for a fight that may come to them. And there was just so many things that struck me that were evidence of that when we were there. One of them is every teenager, male or female, serves at least two years in service to their country. Another one that was very obvious to me as we were even touring around Israel, you you hear the F-16s flying over constantly at any given moment in the nation of Israel. Very small nation, size of New Jersey. There are 12 F-16s flying around the perimeter of the nation of Israel constantly. 24 hours a day, ready. If any enemy encroaches on their airspace, they're ready for what might happen. Another one is we visited something called a kibbutz you say, I have no idea what a kibbutz is. Well, a kibbutz is a community. It's a community of people. And all around the border of the nation of Israel, they have stationed these communities called kibbutzes. Kibbutzim, I think, is the actual plural term. And every kibbutz has at least two things. One is they have a bomb shelter. They are ready right there on the front lines. If the bombs start falling, they are ready to go into that bomb shelter. The second thing that every kibbutz has is an arsenal of weapons. And they're going to come out of that bomb shelter, and they are the first line of defense of anyone who comes into the nation of Israel. Moms and dads and sons and daughters are ready to defend their brothers and sisters and fight. They're right there on the first line of battle. What's the point in all that? The point is that I saw a people who were in a state of readiness for a fight that might come to them. So kind of reflecting on that and heading into this morning and heading into 1 Timothy chapter 6, here's something that was really convicting to me personally and I think is a point of challenge for all of us who are Americans and followers of Christ. I think one of our great challenges for the church in America is that we prefer and drift to a posture of peacetime and pursue comforts and ease over a readiness to fight the battle that's coming to us. I think that's exactly what Paul has in mind as he wraps up this letter to his young son in the faith, Timothy. You hear great emotion as he writes, you hear great compassion for Timothy. Paul is very concerned for the church there at Ephesus, those believers. Timothy was the pastor of the church. Paul is writing to Timothy because he knows he wants to invest in Timothy for the good of the people that Timothy leads. And Paul is writing, and he says something in 1 Timothy 6, 11, and 12 that's going to kind of be the pivot point for us this morning. It's where we're going to start. I'm going to try to walk through the end of this chapter together in God's Word. So I'm going to read 1 Timothy 11 and 12 out of chapter 6. Here's what the Bible says. Paul writing, Timothy, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, Faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Then, verse 12, here's the statement Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. If you circle in your Bible, if you outline, if you star, maybe you've got this somewhere in your house, maybe you've got it in a t shirt. This is a pretty well known statement in Scripture. Paul to Timothy and those that were under Timothy's leadership, and us 2,000 years later that are reading the Word of God, Paul is saying this. In a sense, a battle cry, if you will, push back slumber, push back sleepiness, and awaken to the fact that, listen, as followers of Christ, there's a battle going on. Paul says to Timothy, he uses this word fight. The word fight, we get the English word agony from it. It's the idea of to contend with or to struggle with. It's the idea of an endeavor with strenuous zeal. It's a military term of a soldier who is going into battle and make ready, be ready. You're headed into something that's going to require effort and strenuous zeal. It's a struggle. It's a fight. And it's really like a wake-up call. It's like a clarion call to Timothy, to the church there, to us now, that in this world, here's the reality. You know it. I know it. Following Jesus, holding on to truth, committing to one another in fellowship, living on mission, living against the culture, trying to say this Bible is absolutely true, trying to hold out that we are who we are because Jesus Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, trying to live In this current world, and really the world since it began as a follower of Christ, involves a struggle. And that's what Paul's saying to Timothy. He says, fight the good fight. Paul knows. And you know, right now, even this morning, you're coming in here, maybe you feel the... The wounds or maybe even the scars of the struggle in the midst of a fallen world. It's not anything new. It's been that way since Genesis 3. The people of God are going counterculture, if you will, trying to hold out what God's Word says, trying to live for something greater than ourselves, trying to love with the love of Christ, Christ in us, empowering us to do it. But here's the reality. You live that way by the power of God. It's a struggle in this world. It's a struggle with a very real enemy. 1 John chapter 5 says we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Or the King James says lying in the lap of the evil one. There is a degree that the enemy has great authority, if you will, in this world. Now we know as the people of God we cling to an equal and greater truth. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So you get all these external struggles that we have, but if we could get real honest with each other this morning and look back over our week, we say, listen, I don't even have to go outside of my house to have a struggle. I don't even have to get outside my own head to have struggles. Because my ways of thinking, my desires, my ambitions can become so selfish and so short-sighted and so limiting in this world I was reading in Psalm 119 this week and this beautiful concept that disobedience or trusting myself or sin, it's like we fall into this crag of sin and it confines us. And yet God in His Word and by His Spirit lifts us out of that and puts us in a broad place to where life can be so full and meaningful, not easy, but meaningful in Christ. So I'll, say, I'll have to say we struggle with an enemy, we struggle with a world fallen we struggle with our own flesh so Paul is trying to be a realist about this and he understands the struggle maybe more than anybody in the New Testament Paul understands the struggle Paul at the end of his life 2nd Timothy 4 after his struggle with years and years and years and years Paul is able to say listen Paul's able to say what I hope I'm able to say at the end of my life 2nd Timothy chapter 4 verse 6 go ahead and put that up on the screen Paul says this St. Paul, writing later to Timothy, says, I have fought the good fight. I fought it, Timothy. I have finished the course assigned to me by God. I have kept the faith, this body of truth entrusted to me. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, to all. Who have loved his appearing? Man, there's a day King Jesus is coming and making it all right. There's a day King Jesus. We just sang about him and sang about it, but from now until then, there is a struggle. So Paul says, "Fight the good fight of faith." So how do we do that? So what I'm going to try to do for the next few minutes and take us to the end of this chapter as best I can is I'm just going to ask this question. Okay, Paul. You've said it here, how do we fight the good fight of faith? What does it look like? Paul gives some very active key words here that I'm going to trust the Spirit of God to take and energize us and send us out of here, energized to fight this good fight in the Spirit, by grace, in community, for Jesus' sake. So let me give you a few words from this text. How do we fight the good fight of faith? Paul starts here, number one. Life application number one is this one, is remember. What does that mean? Well, Paul says something here in verse 11 that if you're not careful, you just read right over. So if you write in your Bibles, I want you to get your pen ready, and maybe you've already marked this as you've been reading through it on your own. There's a great phrase in verse 11. Paul says this, but flee from these things, Timothy, we'll come back to that in a minute, and here's what he says, you man of God. As I was reading it this week, it, <laughs> Personally, that just fills me with emotions when I read that. Because here's the way I picture it. Timothy's in Ephesus and Paul's not. Paul's somewhere else. He gets this letter and maybe he unrolls the scroll. I mean, he's not sitting in front of his email. He's not reading his phone. He's unrolling the scroll and he reads it and he gets to this part. And Paul says this, Timothy, I want you to flee from some things. And Timothy, by the way, you man of God. And I think Timothy has got to just read that and in a sense be reminded, Timothy, the battle's tough. The struggles are hard. You have a lot of defeats. I get that. The struggles are all over the place. Maybe there's division in the church. Things are hard. I want you to, listen Timothy. remember something. Remember who you are by the grace of God. Can I tell you how, How strengthening that should be to you and me this morning as followers of Jesus Christ. Here's a reality about every one of us in this room. Our activity will always flow out of our identity. Meaning we will act in accordance to who we are. And who we believe ourselves to be in Christ. Paul says, Timothy. remind you of something, oh man of God. By God's grace... By God's calling, by Christ, by the resurrection, by the power of God, you are God's man. You belong to God. God has set you apart. God has called you out. God has equipped. God has enabled. God has entrusted. And God is now commissioning you to live for a purpose greater than yourself. And Timothy, I think, just had to read that. And and even William Barclay says this, the very fact that Timothy was addressed as the man of God would make him square his shoulders, throw his head back as one who has received his commission from the king. And say, okay, not because of what I've earned, not because of how well I've, I've, I've accomplished anything per se, but because of the grace and the calling and the the love of King Jesus, I am a child of the King. Listen, if you're here this morning, it is imperative for you to fight the daily fight that we are in. Watch this. To be reminded on a regular basis from the living Word of God who you are and whose you are. Because i got to tell you, the world's not telling you that. The voices that I hear throughout the day sure aren't telling me that. And this is not health, wealth, and prosperity. This is not Joel Osteen saying, well, your best life now. I'm not saying, here's, this is truth of God saying, listen, Mike, I know what you even think about yourself sometimes, but because of the grace of God, here's what it means to be in Christ and Christ in you. You're adopted. You're a son You're a daughter. You have an inheritance. I've given you my spirit. You are a possession of the king for his glory. You are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. You are to be salt and you are to be light. You are the man or woman of God. Listen, I think Timothy just had to read that and lay down the scroll for a minute and go, thank you, Lord. Sometimes I don't feel like it. Sometimes I sure don't act like it. And I claim it because of the truth of what God says about me. Paul says, Timothy, if you're going to fight the good fight, number one, you've got to remember who you are and whose you are. And secondly, he kind of pings off of that, and I'm going to tie these next two in together for sake of time, but Back to verse 11, Paul says this, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue. In other words, as we fight the good fight, here's the reality. There's some things we run from, and there's some things we run to. Paul says, Timothy, flee. That's your second life principle. There's some things to run from. The word flee simply means this, run. It's not, you know, some fancy Greek word with all this, but here's what I mean. Run! It's as plain and applicable as you can get from Scripture. You and I both know there are some things in our lives, some pursuits, some temptations, some places, some people, some ways of thinking that I get in my own head that here's how I need to respond. I've got to get out of here and I've got to run. It is as graphic as walking out of your house and there is a copperhead laying on your driveway and you want to get down and pet it and say, oh, what a cute little No, I'm not. I'm getting something to dispose of the reptile. And I'm running from it. Right? So listen, Paul's very clear to Timothy. He says, Timothy, there's some things... You run from. He, he mentions some things. He says these, he, He's mentioning some things earlier. He's talking about pride and conceit. Some of these false teachers had entered in, and they thought they were the final authority on God's word. They thought they were the ultimate authority, and they'd become conceited and prideful and understood nothing. Paul says, run from that kind of thinking. He then talks about greed at the beginning of chapter 6 as this desire for more and more and more and more and we're never satisfied that this greed causes us pain. He says, run from that kind of thing, Timothy. He doesn't say it here in this chapter, but he says it in other places. He also says in 2 Timothy, he also says in 1 Corinthians 6, run or flee sexual immorality. He says, Timothy, you're still a young guy. There's some things that are going to bring you down and cause you great pain in your life. He says, flee immorality. Every other sin that the man commits is outside the body. The more a man sins against his own body. Timothy, don't toy with it. Don't put yourselves in places of temptation. Run. 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 Listen, I think part of being in a Christian community like you're in with brothers and sisters, sometimes your counsel to your brother and sister needs to be this. Hey, bro, run! <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what you think's going You need to run, man. Listen, we all know that our Christian life is not characterized by just what we run from, Right? If all you're characterized by is what you're running from, it's nothing really more than a lot of legalism saying, well, this is not what I'm not about. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. No. There's more. Paul continues, verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue. Pursue. What are you running to? Remember, run from, run to. The word pursue here, literally, you hunters will get this. It means It's the idea of a hunter. It means to follow or press after, to pursue with earnestness and diligence in order to obtain. It means you're in pursuit of something. You say, oh, wait a minute, Pastor Mike. I thought in grace and in Christ and in the gospel, God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You're exactly right. That's what it says in 2 Peter 1.3. God has by His grace entrusted to you everything, but the Bible says you are to take hold of it of it you are to pursue it you are to pursue Christ likeness and we are to pursue godliness and we are to pursue character and we're to pursue community and we're to pursue mission because of the power of the gospel and grace and the spirit of Jesus in us we're to pursue he says here pursue righteousness righteousness that's not positional righteousness. God's pronounced us righteous in Christ. This is practical righteousness. Living out daily life. I have a rightness with God, and I have a rightness with men and women in my life. There's a rightness about my life. Very practical. Godliness is a, is a deeper sense of an internal character, motivations, that those that are the Spirit of God is transforming in our lives. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God in community with other believers, believers and is making you more and more like Jesus. But he says pursue it. Run after it. Love, faith, perseverance. Perseverance is the idea. I'm not stopping. I'm not retreating. The perseverance, your translation may be patience. William Barclay says here the word patience or perseverance never means the spirit which sits with folded hands and simply bears things. It is the unswerving constancy of faith in spite of adversity and suffering. Pressing on despite the situation I'm in. Beautiful picture here of what we are to pursue. Now real quick, let me, let me just give you an illustration about this. Righteousness. Listen, if you walk with Jesus very long, there's going to be situations in your life where there's, a, there's this major internal struggle with, okay, which way should I choose? There, there's an opportunity in front of me. There's a decision in front of me. Something like that. And, my, and, and this is really the way I want to go. But God, I think you're leading me this way. Lord, I think that the scripture's pretty clear. I need to go this way. And there's this struggle within you. That's pursuing righteousness. Let me give you an illustration. The Garden of Gethsemane. The night before the crucifixion, Jesus Christ is there praying in the garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, And there is a struggle going on. You know the story? He knows that the plan of God is for him to go to the cross. He, in his humanness, if you will, all God, all man, perfectly sinless, is crying out. God, is there any other way... To redeem humanity, and if there is, let this cup pass from me, right? The struggle that was going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he responds and says, but, he say? not my will, but what? Your will be done. Struggle for righteousness. Okay, I, I don't, how's that? I don't, let me make the connection. Luke twenty-two forty-four. Put it up on the screen. From the Garden, Luke describes it and says this, and Jesus being in, what's the word? Agony. You know what word that is? Fight the good fight. Same word. In other words, here's Jesus the night before the crucifixion, and he is fighting the good fight in obedience to the will of God. He is fighting the fight and pursuing righteousness. And the Bible says he was in agony. He was struggling on his face in prayer before the Father. And the Bible says... Very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Listen, if you walk very long as a Christian, there are going to be fights and struggles for righteousness. And listen, doing the right thing. Doing the right thing. Jesus was a model of that here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Paul says to Timothy, pursue righteousness in your life. Love, faith, perseverance, gentleness. So he says, listen, if you're going to fight the good fight, you've got to remember whose you are. Secondly, there's some things to run from. There's some things to run to. And we'll give you a couple more and we'll be done. Now, for the sake of time, there's a whole lot here in chapter 6 I do not, unfortunately, have the time to cover. So I'm going to ask you to skip on up to verse 17, and we're going to start there. Go back and read some of these verses on your own. Immense, rich truth here. For the sake of time, let me skip to verse 17. So Paul now is going to switch gears a little bit on Timothy, and he's going to begin to use the language like this. He's going to begin to use the language of a steward. Fourth life application principles we fight the good fight is this, is that we are stewards or that we steward something. You say, Pastor Mike, I don't even know what that word means. Steward? What does that mean? Here's what a steward is. A steward is something or someone, very simply, that manages well what has been entrusted to them. As you grow in your life as a follower of Christ, as churches grow in our maturity, as we grow in our spiritual understanding, we grow to understand God has entrusted much to us. A mark of maturity is how we manage and utilize what has been entrusted to us. It's a steward. You're not going to entrust your house or your kids to someone who's not going to be faithful to take care of your kids while you're gone. Right? You entrust them to someone to be faithful. Paul now is speaking to Timothy about being a steward over two particular areas. He's going to talk about riches and money. He's there. we are we going to talk about money? Yep, because the Bible's going to call us there. And then the other one is he's going to talk about the deposit of truth that you have been entrusted with. How do you manage, how do you handle what has been entrusted to you? The first one, Paul goes to the area of resources, of riches, and money. Now look in verse 17. How do I manage what has been entrusted to me? Paul says in verse 17, speaking to Timothy, Okay, Timothy, I want you to instruct. The word is command. You say, Pastor Mike, I'm getting a little bit nervous because it sounds like we're going to talk about money and my stuff. Can I just say to you with all the honesty that I can say, If I am any kind of elder or pastor of your church, if I do not teach what the Bible says about money and possessions, I am disobeying the word of God. Because Paul says here to Timothy, the pastor at the church at Ephesus, I want you to command and instruct the people of the church, me included, on how to manage well the resources that I've entrusted to them. So here's what he says instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now time out. We're going to come back and work through that verse in just a minute, the time we have remaining. Here's what I know right now. The majority of you in this room have already checked out because you're thinking, well, that's not me. He's talking to the rich folks. That's the folks that live on the other side of town. That's the folks with the big 6 or $7 figure salary. That's not me. Let me tell you who Paul's talking to here specifically. In that day, the word rich meant this. Those who have more than the bare essentials, those who have any more than their daily needs of food, clothing, and shelter. Let's just be honest with each other. That's everybody in this room. Now, if that wasn't enough to convince us, there's a website that I got on this week that's extremely convicting and very challenging, and here's what it's called, globalrichlist.com. Globalrichlist.com. And here's what you can do. As an American, you can go in and enter your salary, whatever you make a year, and then you can compare it to all the other salaries in the world and see where you stack up. So I did that. Ready? Here we go. Let's say you make $15,000 a year. I mean, you wouldn't consider that rich. $15,000 a year. Compared to the rest of the world, that means you are in the top 7.91%. Translation. You make more money than 92% of the rest of the world. You say, okay, I'm doing all right. I make a little bit more than $15,000. How about $30,000? Let's put that in this little graph. If you make $30,000 a year, you're in the top 1.2% of all the incomes of the world. That means basically you make more than, we'll round off, 98% than the rest of the world. You say, I'm doing really well, I'm making $50,000 a year. That's a little above average for our area, but let's just say that. You make $50,000 a year, that means you're in the top 0.31%. Here's what that basically means. We'll round off again. You make more than 99% of the rest of the world. How about that? So maybe we can come to 1 Timothy 6.17 and say, Okay, okay, God's talking to me because he's talking to me. And the attitude here from God is not, is not, riches are wrong. That the accumulation of wealth is a bad thing. What he's saying is, in fighting the good fight, Timothy, as God has entrusted to you a degree of wealth, Scripture says it is the favor of the Lord that makes rich. He gives you the capacity to even earn money. It's not wrong to have possessions. That's not what he's saying. But as a follower of Christ, Timothy says, or Paul says, listen, if you're going to fight the good fight... You need to see the responsibility God has entrusted to you with these riches and this wealth that he's given. He says there's two ways you can respond. There's great temptations. There's great temptation with wealth. There's great temptation with money and possessions. And at the same time, there's incredible opportunity. Let's look at it that way really quick. Great temptation. Verse 17, where we were. Let's read it again. He says, instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be Conceited. Conceited means I take my wealth and I elevate myself in my own mind above everyone else. Conceited also means that I'm looking at my wealth and I find confidence in it and I think I'm totally self-sufficient. In other words, I don't need God and here's what what can happen with money and you all know it and I know it. It can leave you very less dependent on God. There's not this... There's not this daily dependence. You know, Jesus taught, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Listen, I don't need to pray that. I got so much. I don't have to pray. Paul says, hold on. It is God. It is from the very hand of God. Everything you have is from his hand. So he says, instruct them to not be conceited. Don't elevate yourself. And then he says, Do not fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, middle of verse 17. In other words, here's the other great temptation with riches, is that you begin to trust your money. Meaning, I look at my future, I wake up in the morning, I have confidence, I have zeal, I have life because of all of my possessions. My hope for the future is rooted in the size of my 401K. And Paul says, listen, nothing wrong with having possessions. You just can't trust them because they are uncertain. Don't trust in your money. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Listen, can we get right down to where the rubber meets the road? Jesus talks about money and possessions. 25% of everything he said had money, something to do with money and possessions because here's what Jesus knows, here's what Paul knows, and here's what we know about ourselves. It is a major area where we can become enslaved to our stuff. And we can fall into the mindset of I need more, I want more, and here's, and here's what happens. You've been there, I've been there. I get more, I have more, and it simply never gives what it promises. And happiness is always on the, next, uh, on the other side of my next purchase or my next upgrade or my next whatever it is. Again, nothing wrong with having things. That's not what the Bible's saying. Don't be fooled to think that things will give you what they promise. Life is not in what you possess, it's in who possesses you. Jesus understood this. Jesus is very clear, he says in the, in the Gospel of Luke. Beware, this is Luke 12, 15. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Jesus said, don't be so foolish to think your life is in those possessions. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, here's the reality. You cannot serve two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. So he says, watch out for the temptations, watch out for the snares, but then understand there is great opportunity with what has been entrusted to you. Verse 18. It is to give give us a vision, a gospel vision, a kingdom vision of, man, God is entrusted to me. I have plenty. I have an abundance. What am I to do with it? Verse 18. Instruct them, rich, to do good. To be rich in good works. Listen, we know wealth and possessions and money and homes and cars and all those things gives us a capacity to invest in others. It gives us a capacity to make a difference in the lives of other people. That's what Paul's trying to say. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Verse 19, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Isn't that great? So practically then, Pastor Mike, what what does this even look like? I mean, he's calling us to live generously. He's calling The word generosity, by the way, means on your fingertips. The word generosity is the idea of everything I have. God puts it in my hand, and I live with it on my fingertips. God, you want to take it away? That's fine. God, you want me to give it to somebody? That's fine. God, you want to put more in my hand? That's fine. That's generosity on my fingertips. On my fingertips. How do we live this way? I think practically this morning it will help us greatly to see it this way. To live generously is two ways. Number one is a systematic way. And number two is spontaneous. (laughs) Systematic is that God has given the people of God, He's given His church really a command throughout Scripture that we are to regularly and systematically give. (laughs) We're to have a plan. We as a church, one of the reasons we as a church even do what you call taking up an offering, and I as one of your pastors and elders, we teach on giving, is because God has given us a practice to follow that we regularly give. Why? Because he's more concerned about my heart. There is a way that I can fight against greed and fight against materialism, and here's the way I do it. I give. (laughs) I give. And so do you. Every time we give, it is saying, God, I honor you first. I recognize you are the source of all of it. I'm going to put you before my stuff. I'm going to honor you and trust you. And I'm going to push back against this materialism and greed that comes in. That's why we practice it as a church. That's why we as a church continually challenge you in the area of giving, not because it's something we want for you, not because it's a heavy-handed thing. It's because the Scripture is clear over and over and over. There is an abundance to life. There is a joy in life when you live, What's this, like this, verses like this. So we even gave a challenge a few months ago to say, listen, if you're a giver and we have, we have generous people at our church, if you're a giver, we challenge you. Is God leading you to give more? There was also a challenge to some of you, and we've done some research and statistics that would call this your church home, who, to be really honest, aren't giving at all. And that is not a word of commendation, or uh, that's not a word of condemnation. That's a word of challenge to align with what God's word says. We want you to know the joy of generosity and saying, God, I'm going to take the first 10% that comes into my life financially, and I'm going to honor you by giving it through my local church. Why? Because God has called us to do that. And the result? Oh, man, there's tons of results. One of the results is what he says right here in verse 19. Storing up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. There is no greater investment than giving to the kingdom of God. Jesus said, don't store up treasure here on earth. You know what's going to happen? Moth and rust. and It's going to just fade away. But store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust thus corrupt. Trust God. Give. Is there a systematic way that you're giving? Are you giving through this local church? We're encouraging and challenging you to do it for your sake. Secondly, spontaneous. Listen, there are times that we live like this and we hold everything out on our fingertips and we hear of a family or we hear of an individual or we hear of a student who needs to go to Great Escape or we, and we say, you know what, I'm going to live generously. Here on my fingertips, I'm giving it. That is a life of Abundance. And that is a life that Jesus calls, watch this, a clear eye in Matthew 5. That that life that lives like this says the eye is cloudy. You can't even see all that God has. But the generous heart is an eye that sees clearly all that God has. So Paul says, Timothy, instruct them, encourage them to live generously, be ready to share. And the last one's very quick, and we're, we're going to finish here this morning. Wrap up 1 Timothy. So, Paul says, listen, fight the good fight. Remember whose you are. Secondly, there's some things to run from. There's some things to run to. Or live as a steward. And then Paul says, the ultimate thing that we steward is this. First Timothy chapter 6, end of the chapter, and we're going to close. Verse 20. Life application number five is guard. What are we guarding? O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus have gone astray from the faith. All right, Pastor Mike, you've got to help me. What's he talking about? So after writing six chapters and Paul pouring out his heart to Timothy, his young son in the faith, he ends it and he says, oh, Timothy. he just hear his passion coming out. He says, Timothy, guard something. The word guard means to set aside or the word guard means to see as unique, as special. It means to fight for. It means to defend. He says, guard that which has been entrusted to you. You know what he's talking about? He's simply talking about the revelation of God that has been entrusted to every believer, the Scriptures, the truth of God's Word. I mean, you live in a day and age where God has revealed Himself, we have a copy of it in Scripture. We don't worship a book. We don't worship the ink. This is paper. But we, we do worship the God who has spoken to us. He has revealed Himself. And it is for us to know the revelation of God, to be transformed by what God has to say. It is for us to defend the truth of God's Word. It is for us to fight for the truth of God's Word, to know it, to read it, to study it, to memorize it. Let me tell you another way and we're finished. It's very clear that Paul has on his mind here. He's thinking, Timothy, I have entrusted the truth to you. If you read the beginning of the book, Second Timothy, Paul says, Timothy, your grandparent, your grandma, your, gra- your mom, they entrusted this truth to you. And the idea is this, Timothy, now, here's how you guard it. You've got to make sure you pass it on to the next generation. Are you being a good steward with what has been entrusted to you? And i got to tell you one of the things that I am most excited about just to be a part of this church is I do believe this is a place that we honor the Word of God. And i got to tell you, I am so thrilled to be a parent here that we are pursuing something called a family discipleship plan. And you say, Pastor I'm going to get so tired of hearing about the family discipleship plan. It's just a curriculum, isn't it? No, I tell you what the family discipleship plan is. It's this. It is taking what God's Word says about His Word, and it is saying we have a holistic strategy for every parent. What's this? to take what has been entrusted to us and pass on to our children. That's what it is. It follows a plan from birth through 18. It gives you tools and resources where you can go into your kid's bedroom at night, if you will, and as you're praying and praying over them and putting them to bed, you can teach them just simple principles from God's Word that fit into a big plan for over 18 years of their life. Why? Because God says, oh, Mike, as a dad, guard what has been entrusted to you. And one of the ways you guard it is you pass it on to the next generation. That's our job. That's our calling, and that's one of the ways we fight the good fight. You bow your head with me this morning. I'm going to ask our team to come on up and begin to play. and maybe, maybe God's challenged you into an area with His truth this morning, and we're going to stand and sing a song of just praise and rejoicing of our great King this morning. As our team begins to lead us, and you sit there and you see, I, I don't know what God's spoken to you. I don't know what he's put on your heart. What is, what is your step of action? What is your next step? Is there something to run from? Is there something to run to here? Is it community or is it the gathering of God's people or is it the mission? Or is it simply God's word in your own life? Is there something this morning that's become very evident to you? God help me, I've got to run from it. God help me. Maybe you need to be reminded this morning that you are a son or a daughter of the King by God's grace. Or maybe this morning, very clearly, as we as you just did a moment of worshipful attitude there, you realize, I'm not sure I'm a son or daughter of the King. All these things you're talking about seem so foreign to me. There continues to be this, this emptiness in my heart. I hear all this stuff you're talking about. God's Word's meaningless to me. I'm just kind of here... Listen, here's what Scripture teaches. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ lived the perfect life you could not live. He died on a cross to take away your sin. He rose from the dead, and yours is a response of faith. Yes, Lord, I trust you. I give my life to you. Your righteousness, your goodness, your perfection, I give you my sin. This morning, you realize by faith you're ready to trust King Jesus, the Savior and Lord. Right there in your seat, just call out to Him. Lord, I need you. God, I need you. I Surrender. I repent. I turn for my own way. For the rest of us this morning, let's respond as the Spirit of God leads us. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for this morning. I invite you, Holy Spirit, to work in our hearts this morning. Call us to obedience and action for your glory. In Jesus' name.